Hi, I'm Nick Vigier, CISO and CIO About Town, and you're listening to Cloud Security Reinvented Podcast. You're listening to Cloud Security Reinvented, a podcast for security leaders with a focus on the cloud. Learn best practices from fellow security professionals and how they disconnect from it all at the end of the day. Cloud Security Reinvented. Good morning, or depending on when you are in the world, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Welcome to Cloud Security Reinvented. I'm your host, Andy Ellis. Before I introduce our guest for the week, a quick word from our sponsor, Orca Security. Orca provides agentless security and compliance for your public cloud infrastructure, enabling you to detect and prioritize security risks in minutes, not months. I'm here today with Nick Vigier, CISO About Town. Welcome, How's Nick. How's it going, Eddie? It's going really wonderfully today, and I really appreciate you joining us. Across our careers, I think we as professionals grow, at least I hope we do, but the world that we're in changes. So where we started our career in today don't look at all the same. And so I love getting insight from our guests, especially in light of the transition from the on-premise world that I think many of us grew up in to the world of cloud that's become the default. And so for you, literally, when I say like the on-premise world, you actually started in networking, if I recall, uh, and made the transition to security when you worked for the New York Stock Exchange. What was yeah, that Yeah, it was like? a really interesting journey. I, I fell in love with networking when I was in college and became this really interesting cross-section of what I would call systems thinking. You have to understand how everything works in order to bring it together. And the protocols were interesting. And so I got my first job at the New York Stock Exchange working for a company called SIAC that did the American Stock Exchange technology and New York Stock Exchange. And I started there four months before 9-11. So talk about the ultimate business continuity exercise. I was literally going through the security cordon to vacuum gypsum powder out of Bay Networks equipment. So when you talk about yep. the migration from on-premise to cloud, this was the most on-premise you could get. And a really interesting learning experience. But I was fortunate that I was sitting next to the pen testing team. There was no room for me next to the comm engineering team. And... <laughs> I would just cruise through my work and have time. And I was, looked at what they were doing and I was like, that looks really cool. That looks really different. So I volunteered my time with them. And after a couple of years, ended up getting brought into the team where I realized pen testing is an art and I'm not an artist, but fell in love with cybersecurity and everything around it. Yep. So it was a really fortuitous seating assignment. There's a, a really neat theme in there that I've heard from some other CISOs and people in other environments about this getting a job opportunity just by sort of volunteering with your peers. Like, oh, hey, your job looks cool. Like, how can I help? What can I learn? And just sometimes taking on work that you're not necessarily suited for. Like you said, you're not the artist, but you learned some things that you were very excited about. So I, I love hearing that. And then I think you went to LiquidNet, which was you spent eight years there and you ended up in charge of physical and information security. So what was that career journey like inside one company? So it was long? really, I was really fortunate. The gentleman that brought me into the pen testing team, Al Berg, has been one of my mentors for a long time. And he went over to LiquidNet and said, hey, come over here. It was only a 125 person company, but he understood that security was a much more holistic thing. It wasn't just the technical security. It was understanding the business. It was the physical security side of things. I mean, three weeks into my time at LiquidNet, I went to All Good Tennessee. There's nothing happening in All Good Tennessee. Where is All Good Tennessee? Because I know where several things are, but... It's between Knoxville and Nashville. Okay. I think it is. And so like, it's two hours from Nashville, but I learned bug sweeping. So nonlinear junction detectors, signal analyzers, like all of that, because 
hey, let's figure this stuff out. But then mm -hmm. also taking access control and CCTV and all those things along within the physical security realm, but then also covering risk management, application security, security engineering, security operations, like really the full yep. gamut. We got the SAS 70 when that first came out and all those fun things within the financial services sector. So there was a lot of wood to chop, but a really holistic approach to security, which I found really fed into my liberal arts mindset and look at the broad picture. And I suspect there's probably some things from that physical world that are great analogies for your brain to wrap around when applying it to the IT and, and cloud world. It was actually really interesting to bring the kind of like hacker mindset to yep. physical security because you started to see things in a very different way of like, well, that's how I would break that lock. Most physical security people are literally just looking to make sure that the doors are locking. Okay, but if yep. I blow a can of cold air between the doors and all you have is infrared as your motion detector, now your door's just going to open. So that really flipped things on its head and let us take a little bit more of a technology-enabled approach to physical security. But then you bring, yeah, obviously to your point, you bring that back also to the information security side, and that brings a whole different color to the problem. Yeah, that is fascinating. And then from there, you went to Sony, which mm -hmm. is a, a complicated multinational company. And so yeah. where did you fit in the Sony hierarchy? Because <laughs> here's I can tell, like Sony owns Sony, which owns Sony and has a subsidiary called Sony. There's a lot of left pocket, right pocket stuff going on, right? Yeah. So I went to Sony because I wanted to learn what it was like working for a huge company and to learn budgeting. Yep. Most company like LiquidNet was a much smaller company. Budgeting was kind of like, how much did we make? How much did we spend? Was this bigger than that? And so I got paired up with a forensic accountant that was helping the budgeting process and taught me everything about budgeting, which was amazing. And I was there after the PlayStation breach, but before the pictures breach. So during this really okay. quiet period when everybody really wanted to get security done right. And I uh, worked for a gentleman, Phil Reidinger, who is a, also a great mentor of mine. Yep. And he brought together such an amazing group of security professionals and a completely different mindset. And he came at it from a, a legal background as well. So you get that whole color. But yeah, learn that international privacy. I had security. I own security for a museum, <laughs> a credit card company, two biotech companies, music licensing, disc printing, and Western Hemisphere data center. So it was along with Sony Corp of America as the right. holding company. So it was really a very broad experience from that perspective. That is fascinating. That sort of gives you sort of the feel for sometimes what a managed services provider might get when you work for a company that's that diverse. And then you've had a couple gigs that I thought were really fascinating because back to back, you were the CISO at DigitalOcean and then the CIO at Gemini. And most recently, you were the CISO at ID.me. And we don't often see people do that CISO, CIO, Tango. What was that like for you? So I was at DigitalOcean, which was a really fantastic experience. You know, and again, a very broad set of responsibilities and took that LiquidNet approach where I was covering everything. And I got a call from a recruiter that was saying, hey, Gemini is looking for a CIO. And at the time, I was trying to figure out why CISOs and, and uh, CIOs don't get along. Yep. Um, like, where is that tension? Where is that coming from? And I really wanted to understand it. So I was actually doing some guerrilla interviewing, pretending to interview companies that I really just wanted to understand why they were hiring a security director or a CISO. And uh, I got a call from Gemini and I was, why are you calling me? I'm a CISO. And they said, well, they have a CISO. They have some other former CISOs are obviously very security minded and you might be a very good fit. And I saw it as a really good opportunity to run a marathon in the other man's shoes yep. and also kind of get back to my technology roots a little bit of like networking and infrastructure and all those fun things. 
And so I dove in and it was a 35 person company when I joined. It was April 2017 and Bitcoin is at $1,000, which sounds really cute right now. It does. <laughs> and it was an amazing learning experience in helping a company grow and set down the rails for growth and provide people with the psychological safety to do good work in mm -hmm. a very hectic environment. I like that phrase, by the way, our, our listeners should really grab onto you know, psychological safety to do good work. I think if your people don't feel safe, it's hard for them to do their best work. And so glad that was a, a focus for you. And then sort of around that, you've also dabbled in what I would like to call sort of the field CISO or sometimes advisory CISO, you know, my gig today, you know, mm -hmm. where you're sort of out in front of customers and helping evangelize your product, but at the same time, helping to make them more secure. Mm -hmm. So how do you find the, the, that different from the role of being a mainline CISO? So from my mindset, I'm very much a strategic ideator. I like to yep. be involved in a bunch of different problems. I like to try to come up with solutions to them that are going to help drive things forward. In that type of role, it really allows you to touch a variety of different industries, a variety of different mindsets. But my experience is only about 20% of CISOs that you interact with that want to engage. And in my particular case, it was really saying, hey, I'm here to help. You want like an extra, like we have an NDA signed and everything. I know how all of your stuff works. I will literally sit with you and work on your board deck. I will sit with you and work on your strategy or your budget. It will cost you nothing. And still only maybe 20% take you up on it. And yep. it's, I would encourage CISOs to reach out to their communities and partner with people. And especially when there are people that are not trying to sell you, but are literally just there to try to help, to take them up on it. It can't hurt. Like, what do you have to lose? Yeah, no, that's really valuable. And I think a lot of people you know, don't take that partnership with the field CISO or even the CISO at a vendor who's often really happy to help build a relationship and invest in you. And they're not trying to sell you today, partly because they recognize that if you think good thoughts about your vendor, then maybe you'll buy more in the future. Yeah, and it's, I think the challenge for some organizations is trying to figure out how do you measure the value that these field CISOs are bringing to the table. Yep. And what I would argue is that a lot of the value comes in in probably like an 18 month life cycle. Like it's a relationship building and a trust building exercise. Mm -hmm. And over time that yields money. But when you're dealing with a sales organization where they want to see bookings and revenue and all that, it's a lot harder to tie directly to, well, the field CISO did it. Right. Right. Or it's because of the work that this yielded and over yeah. a longer time frame. Although I'll say if you've dabbled in being a CIO to see what it's like on the other side, maybe CMO might be your next thing to go experiment with and see the challenges of trying to bring in qualified leads and help manage the pipeline. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, one of those like, what have you done for me lately type of jobs and really, yeah. really challenging. No, I, th I think it's one of the hardest jobs. You know, I work very closely with CMOs in my career and, and I would not want that job. And I think CISO is a hard job, but that one seems like it's much more arcane. Yeah, I mean, I will say like part of the experience from having been a CIO and trying to understand that tension was, you know, everybody's like, oh, being a CISO is so hard. And my response is go try to be a CIO. Like yeah. you are literally trying to lay track as fast as you can so the business doesn't fall off the tracks. Mm -hmm. You know, and to the CIO, the CISO looks like Hollywood, right? We do stuff as <laughs> a lot longer things. tail. Well, it's yeah. longer tail. It's more about analysis, but let's have a conversation, you know, and things like that. And to a CIO that's literally just trying to move faster than the business. Yeah, while, while saving like money every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's think about how the world has changed across your career. And if I just think about, you know, cloud and how that affected security. 
So what do you see as sort of that biggest change to the security approach now that you know cloud is, you know, whether it's cloud native or cloud first? I had somebody recently tell me he didn't want to be cloud stupid, which I'm still trying to decide what it means. But how do you see the world of security changing? I mean, obviously, eight to 10 years ago, it was, oh, no, cloud, so scared cloud, et cetera. I mean, even my time at Gemini, we started in AWS, and we actually built out physical data centers to deal with latency for high-frequency trading. Yep. So... As the cloud has changed and networking's changed and whatnot, and other organizations have moved to the cloud, some of these considerations that led to, oh, we have to be on-prem have gone away. It's been really good to see regulators warming up to the cloud because that's always been a hindrance. I mean, even CMS on the Medicare, Medicaid side has always been very anti-cloud and now finally kind of coming around. And that eliminates a lot of those hurdles, right? A lot of those like intellectual gut reaction, fight or flight type of conversations around cloud. And it makes everything a lot, you can have a much more objective conversation around what is the best approach. And the feature sets are obviously a lot more complete and more mature. So the ability to rethink things is great from a cloud perspective and how things have changed. I think that's a really powerful one. And then every industry has its little quirks that surprise people from the outside. And since you're you know, in between gigs at the moment, you know, CISO about town, you can pick any of the industries you've been in for this one. <laughs> but what uh, is that surprising thing, especially about cloud security, that's going to be different from the inside than what we see from the outside? I think everyone thinks that companies are further along in their cloud maturity journey than they really are. (laughs) Everyone talks a big game about their security or their approach or their infrastructure maturity. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of work that still has to be done because there's a lot of companies that have, from what I've seen just from the field CISO perspective and and whatnot, it's you have a lot of companies that have forklifted from more physical infrastructures straight into the cloud. And it just doesn't work that way. You can get away with it, but it's going to cost you a lot more. It's going to be a lot more inefficient. And getting cloud native is really what organizations can be focusing on in a very real sense, which requires a very different set of skills. Yeah. Well, I think I've noticed this a lot when people especially do that forklift sort of halfway is when you were building inside your data center, your IT and your security team did a lot of things for you that the developers never, ever saw. Mm-hmm. And so you provided security that worked in this you know environment where like every network cable goes to the same router. So I can just plug in a tap and I know what's going on and you can't deploy a server without me putting an agent on it. And when you get into the cloud, like you lose a lot of that friction that created the opportunity for support. And so you forklifted, but you left behind everything and your developers do not want to change their processes and slow down to like tie an agent into their workload, for instance. Right. So I think that lift and shift sometimes doesn't work as well as people think. I think companies get away with it for a while. And at a certain point, if you've taken too long to realize that you have to have this come to Jesus moment where you have to realize, oh my God, we have to go and change the way that we've done things. Yeah. And that becomes a much more dramatic shift. And some organizations or sometimes it's too late or it requires an inordinate amount of effort that then you're balancing against a product roadmap. And where's the ROI on that? Yeah, all the new features are being built by developers who've been ignoring the security tools that you thought worked. Yep. And those are the the high revenue ones. So you're not getting in their way. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So if you look back at the practices that you first learned right in that pre-cloud era, which ones of those do you think most resonate today as fundamentals that we need to maintain and get better at? 
I mean, I'd hate to reuse Dan Walsh's response, but I, I think it's knowledge management, right? It's all that asset management, knowing where your data is, knowing yep. the context, knowing the value. Um, the great thing from a cloud perspective now is everything's API. So you have the ability to automate a lot of these discoveries. You have the mm -hmm. ability to get to ground truth a lot faster in a more dynamic way. And so I think this is the perennial, this is always the problem, whether it's for IAM or whether it's for resource management or whether it's for incident response or what have you, it all comes down to that knowledge management component that covers that broad swath of yep. identity and asset management. Okay. I love that. Go getting back to those fundamentals. Now, flip side, what are the things that we used to do and insist everybody do that we ought to have just buried and killed off a long time ago? I mean, God, I hate third-party risk questionnaires. <laughs> <laughs> They're really this like exercise that we go through where it's folks are just lying through their teeth or they're telling partial truths or they're, they're saying what they think they need to say. And then the person on the other side oftentimes isn't even looking at the responses. It was just, yeah, we did it. And so it's, I'd love to see that be something that becomes more automated in a meaningful way. So mm -hmm. obviously some organizations that try to do this to a certain extent, but you end up with reports of like, oh, hey, here's a domain that you own that has like bad SSL certificates. Like, no, actually, that's not mine. Yep. And that turns into this massive effort of trying to correct a body of information. So I think if we can get to a point where we can just get rid of or streamline this process in a more effective and real way to actually deliver value and meaningful information, like I want to see that the spreadsheets go away. <laughs> yep. Yeah, what I loved about the spreadsheets is they all started from one of a handful of templates. It was the yes. BitSig or maybe it was ISO 27002. But then every time a company would suffer a breach, they'd go figure out what they thought the root cause was. And they'd be like, oh, we didn't have a question about that. So they'd go add this question to the bottom of the questionnaire. So I would get them when I was at Akamai, right? And we filled them out and it became a game to go take like these five questions that you hadn't seen before and go figure out and map them back to those companies' breaches to be like, oh, that's how that breach really happened because you just disclosed to me, like here in your questionnaire. But they would never ask the hard question, which was like, how will we shoot ourselves in the foot by using your service? Mm -hmm. Like this was really about like, are you a reasonable company? Not, am I gonna get in trouble because I use this in a dangerous way rather than the way that you think I should use it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really challenging to find that value. I mean, to your point, I think they've all started from a similar point of origin and evolved in this nuclear waste pond that now everybody needs to answer these varieties of questions yep. and it just becomes a massive drain on human resources within your teams. That it definitely is. So you know, anything you do to streamline that is what vendors end up doing. It's like, how can I make this as easy as possible? But it's not really like, how do we provide value to the customer because the customer doesn't know how to extract any value at that point. Yep, absolutely. So when you think about the surprises of the cloud era, like I don't think any of us predicted what we have today, but what's the one thing that probably has surprised you the most? Well, I mean, we talked about the forklifting already. I think yep. that that really has surprised me in a lot of ways and people see that as a digital transformation. It's like, it's Did not. It does it surprise you that it doesn't work as well as people think it does or that people are still trying to do it? It surprises me that people are still doing it to a large extent. It's I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Yes. More in <laughs> sorrow than in anger. And so it, it really I think that's the biggest challenge is like, why aren't we seeing the light here and the benefits and figuring out how to upskill people 
you know, and making sure that they're doing things in the right way. I mean, I think the other big surprise for me is really when I was at Gemini and we were going through uh, SOC 2 and stuff like that and realizing that, hey, we're doing all of our infrastructure as code. I can just turn over the Git logs to my SOC auditor and say, here you go, and never yeah. talk to my SREs and never have to talk to my engineers and the network folks or anything because everything was defined as code. And that was more of an epiphany of, oh, wow, from a cloud native perspective and an automation perspective, this is what we've been trying to do, right? Yeah. And make things better. And yeah, no, that I definitely have really loved. Now, if you look back, everybody wishes they'd gotten some piece of advice earlier than they did. What's the thing you wish somebody had told you early in your career? This had, well, I mean, this one's an easy one, but when you're a lot younger, you have a lot of arrogance and you like, come off <laughs> as a jerk. So uh, a little bit of that self-awareness went a long way, but I think the best piece of advice I've gotten in the last couple of years was, I was actually on a tour in Italy and the tour guide said, well, you know, things in Italy are a little bit different. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different. And that gave me a sense of like, all this jumping up and down and wanting people to see things my way, that's not my job. My job is to yep. give them an understanding of ground truth and to help them make an informed decision. And their decision isn't right, it's not wrong, it's just different. And so that allowed me to take a step back from feeling like the decision was personal and more of just everybody comes to the table with different perspectives. And as long as I can give them the facts and as long as I can help them understand the risks that they're taking, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different. Yeah, I really love that, especially actually coming from a tour guide. Yeah. Because in a previous job, <laughs> our vision was to be a helpful and sustainable guide to our business partners. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I always thought about it was I can't tell you where to go. I can give you some hints. I can tell you where is dangerous. Like you really shouldn't jump off that cliff. Although maybe the one that's got water underneath it would be okay. But you're going to choose one of 12 different paths. My job is to help you be on that path as safely as you can not to pick the path for you. Exactly. Exactly. And I think taking away a little bit of that, I think a lot of folks take the decision making process very personally. And I think being able yes. to be a little bit more objective about it is certainly very helpful. So that's kind of like my mantra. <laughs> yeah, I like that's a really good one. So when you think about the future and the opportunities that technologies are going to bring us, what are you most excited about? Like we don't have flying cars yet, but what's your cool thing? I mean, I think for me, and I kind of talked about it a little bit when we we're talking about the third-party risk management is the automation of all the things, right? So yep. when we have, when everything's in the cloud and you're doing things in cloud native ways and infrastructure is defined as code and there are known design patterns from the various cloud providers, et cetera, and you're able to do things like your automated compliance auditing, automated change management, automated infrastructure as code, verification prior to launch, automated remediation, like being able to allow people to do the things that they do well, right? And that they're awesome at. I think my time at Palantir was, I came to the realization that there are things that machines do really well, and there are things that people do exceedingly well. People are great at things like some pattern recognition and spotting yep. weird, but they just have to be presented in the right way. And so being able to let the machines do the things that they do well and automate a lot of these things, and then letting the humans go be the creative things that the creative entities that allow the business to innovate versus just doing busy work or just working harder is I think the real promise and what I'm really excited about and what I try to find ways of doing every day. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna summarize that as, you know, letting computers help humans spot the weird more often. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's actually advice I'd give everybody. If you ever discover something and you're like, huh, that's weird, just keep pulling at it until you really understand it. 
because often there will be surface explanations that people say, oh, you don't have to worry about that. But most of the time, your gut instinct of that being weird meant there's something there for you to learn. Maybe there's no danger, but there's always something really cool there. I think that humans are, if you're presented with the right information, you can make decisions exceedingly quickly without having any or very little context or no advanced analysis. If I send someone a map of everywhere they VPN'd in from in the last week, it would take a person a quarter of a second to look at the map, basically say, oh, I was never in Russia right. in the last week. Whereas if it's a sock doing it, now they're going to go and have to like call the user and it has to be one of like 15 people that it happened to and whatnot. I don't need to spend that amount of time doing that. I can literally just give the user the information and tell yeah. them, tell me, that Here's looks weird. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I love that. So what do you do to unwind? Like you sound very excited about security, but I bet you're excited about some other stuff too. I'm heavily excitable. I like building things. So I do some woodworking. I'm building an office for my wife right now in her closet. And so it helps me to do a lot of problem solving, yep. but then do it with my hands and stay real with it. The things that help me kind of get away from things, uh, I love scuba diving. I don't get to do it very often, but I have a portable unit that I bring into the pool, for example, in the summertime, and I can yep. just escape from the world for 15 minutes and just focus on my breathing and relax. And then I just started doing uh, Pilates. I have to strengthen my hips because they've been damaged from playing hockey so I can get back to playing hockey. Because that's another one as a goalie, the little, the most like stereotypical cybersecurity role that you could have on a hockey team. It, it is. <laughs> Your hips get messed up, but at the same time, you have one thing to focus on. It is your only job, and it becomes very meditative to a certain extent, just like scuba diving does. So those are things that I, I do to unwind. Awesome. I love those. And now just doesn't have to be about technology, but what's a bit of wisdom that you've encountered that you have that you just want to share with people and have more people here? I mean, I think the biggest thing is that there's no security career ladder. It's a jungle gym. If you look at security in a broad enough sense, it is everything from your engineering work to your product security, application security work, your investigations, your incident response, your governance, risk and compliance, privacy, even physical security. And there are roles in there for everyone. And I think it's key to understand that like security isn't just pen testing. The number of people that are early in their career is like, I just want to go be a pen tester. Well, as someone who had to go through that for a year and realize that wasn't for me, trying to help people understand where they fit into that journey or what they might have aptitudes for, I think is really, really important. And I think the other one is just really, you got to take a step back from chopping wood. Everybody's super busy. There's always more work to do, but you have to pick your head up from time to time. You have to take a look around and make sure that you're chopping down the right tree and make sure that it's fitting into a strategy because what you don't want to do is end up in a situation where you spend two years just chopping wood and working as hard as you can look up and say, I'm still the same person I was two years ago. Like that's not satisfying. Right. Now, did you effectively make change not only in your organization, but in yourself? Absolutely. Always look to invest in yourself. Yeah. No, I really like that. Well, Nick, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thanks everybody for joining us. You've been listening to Cloud Security Reinvented. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or just watch us here on the Orca website. Thank you for checking out this episode of Cloud Security Reinvented, brought to you by Orca Security. Orca Security detects and prioritizes cloud security risks for AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud without the gaps in coverage, alert fatigue, and operational costs of agents. Please follow Cloud Security Reinvented wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or visit orca.security slash podcast to get immediate access to all of the latest episodes.